We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 again, and we're looking at chapters 1 and 2. We have uh, our uh, special teaching time for our children uh, this morning. If you have a child third grade and under, if you would like them to take advantage of that during this time. Uh, my notes are a little bit shorter this morning than normal, but not, not like last week. Uh, last week I looked down and my notes had vanished, actually. Uh, maybe, hopefully you didn't notice that. Some of you did. You talked to me about it later. Uh, and so uh, I was kind of depending on my PowerPoint slides through there. So, uh, you know, that happens sometimes and it's okay. And so people were like, wow, it's a little bit shorter this week. I, I don't want to start a new pattern here. Uh, but, you know, if, you, if we really want to study Scripture, it does take time to say, okay, we really got to look at things. We got to look at the background. We got to examine it. And when we come to the Christmas hymn that we sang this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we're participating when we sing that song that we first heard this morning when the Rogers were up here, and then we sang it together. We're participating in a tradition that spans over 1,100 years. Some of you wonder why the tune of that song sounds so ancient. It's because the musical notes of that song go back to a chant. And it's been updated now and made a little more melodic, but you can still tell it's from a musical tradition that took place a long time ago. But there's more to that song than maybe you know. It was originally part of a collection of Latin songs that were called the Great O's. And each song was based upon the title of Christ from uh, the book of Isaiah. There was the O Sapentia, the O Wisdom, and O Adonai, O Lord, O Radax Yesi, the Root of Jesse, O Clavis David, the Key of David, O Oriens, Dayspring, O Rex Genitium, which is king of the Gentiles. Every one of these was uh, a call to worship the Lord for who he is based on a text in Isaiah. And then finally, the climax song in this set was O Emmanuel, which we sang, God with us. And the church or the choir would chant each of these songs and each song would bring the congregation closer to the seventh and the greatest O of the collection, which was O Emmanuel. Well, this Christmas, we're working through the story of Jesus' birth in Matthew's gospel. And one of the first things we saw last week about the opening of the gospel is that the coming of Emmanuel is the crescendo of the great story of salvation. My contention is that we so often treat the birth of Jesus as a self-contained narrative. We, we pull it out every Christmas, just like we do maybe a snow globe, and we shake it, and we look at it from different angles, and we, uh, bring, it brings us some delight, and then we tuck it back safely away to bring out again in another year. But the birth of Jesus is not a self-contained story. It's not even the beginning of the story. It's actually the climax of the story. And nothing helps us to see that better in the New Testament than the opening of Matthew's gospel. The gospel begins the book of the genealogy, as we saw last week, literally the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we have a long list of names, if you're looking there in your Bibles, tracing the line of Jesus through Abraham and David and finally through Joseph as the husband of Mary 
And at the climax of the story, Jesus is born, who Matthew says is called Emmanuel. Matthew says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Im anu el, with us, God. And just like the ancient collection of Latin songs worked systematically toward the great O, O Emmanuel, so the genealogy in Matthew's gospel works toward the coming of Emmanuel. I said last week, genealogies are mainly composed so that people can trace their lineage back to a common ancestor, which gives value to everyone in the list after him. But this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in this genealogy, the situation is completely reversed. Even though it is called the genealogy of Jesus, he is not the first name in the list. He is at the climax of the list. Emmanuel is at the crescendo. The person of Jesus isn't magnified because he descended from Abraham or David. Rather, all of the other men and women in the genealogy, including Abraham and David, find their value in the fact that they are ultimately related to him. And so it is with us. The only identity that really should matter to any of us, no matter what our profession, no matter what our talents, no matter what our experience the only identity that should matter to us of, only, of, of any importance is that we derive from this ancestry of Jesus Christ. We have this eternal hope that comes from the fact that we are rightly related to him, that we are rightly related to the person of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, our Emmanuel. Because the story that Matthew is telling through this genealogy is our story. The new beginning that comes at the climax of human history with the arrival of Emmanuel is our new beginning in Jesus Christ. The genealogy begins with Abraham. Do you remember specifically why God called Abraham, this pagan man from the city of Ur? It was because the world that God created had fallen into utter chaos and darkness and wickedness reigned on the earth. God had created the world in order to dwell with his people. He created it so that the creator could be with them. And he was literally with them in the garden, walking with them, communing with them. There's a reason the garden state is called a paradise. But when Adam and Eve sinned, as you know, then they heard the sound of God walking in the garden and they hid themselves. And in necessary judgment, God put them out of his presence. We lost the Emmanuel. We lost God with us in a real, close, immediate sense. But he did not do this before promising them that one day someone would come from their family tree to rescue them. After that, generations were born. The sin of humanity increased and abounded with, such success, with each successive generation and, and with such wickedness that men and women went further from God. But after God judged the world with a flood, wiping it clean with a fresh start, it was obvious 
because of the sin of Babel, that sin was still in the world. Because the DNA of sin was not in the creation in general, but in the hearts of people who had descended from Adam who fell. At Babel, it became obvious that men and women were unable to dwell with God and that humanity needed to be rescued. Abraham, who's at the beginning of this genealogy, was God's response to the sin manifested at Babel. And God promised Abraham, in you, through your family line, all the other families of the earth, will be blessed. And ever since that promise, the world has been waiting for that person, that descendant from Abraham, who would be able to bring this blessing, this salvation to the world so that once again, God could dwell with his people. Nothing is ever going to be completely right until we are dwelling with God. And each of us who know the Lord in our, in, in our hearts, we, we, we've met the Lord, we know him, we we've have our sins forgiven from him, We recapitulate this story as soon as we're old enough to be conscious of our own existence. We sense that something is terribly wrong. We feel pain and loss and guilt and other effects of our being born into a world that is corrupt with a heart that is desperately wicked. And we look around and we see the the magnified impact of corruption looming large in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our cities and in the world. But Jesus Christ, at the climax of human history, appeared to rescue us from sin and judgment and to make us rightly related to him as we give our lives to him and follow him. Now, this morning, I'm going to ask you to look more closely at the story that Matthew is telling, particularly in the genealogy, that climaxes in the coming of Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel. I'm not going to read through the entire genealogy like we did last week. But I I want you to notice that there are three sections of this genealogy. The first section starts with Abraham. Here it is on the screen for you in verse 2. And ends with David the king. And the second picks up with Solomon, David's son, and ends with Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And most of you know that was the time when God judged the nation of Judah, the, the, the final remnant of his people, and sent them to a far country just like he promised he would do in Deuteronomy if they would not stop their idolatry. And they were carried away captive by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. And, and Matthew uses that event to mark the end of this second part of his genealogy. And the third section picks up with the genealogy, picks up the genealogy with Shealtiel, who was born in Babylonian captivity. And it ends with the climax of the genealogy at the coming of Jesus Christ. So in in verse 17, Matthew summarizes the genealogy in this way. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to to, to the Christ, 14 generations. So three sections of names, 14 names in each section. That's a remarkable thing, we think. But then we take a closer look and we realize that things are not as neat and clean in the genealogy 
as we might think after reading what Matthew says in verse 17. But if we take some time to investigate the the seeming discrepancies in the genealogy, we discover parts of the stories that helped shape what Matthew records for us. As you can see here, the first two lists have 14 names, but list number three only has 13 names. In fact, I have a book on the birth narratives of Jesus written by a very uh, well-known New Testament scholar, and one of the sections in his book on the, on the genealogy of Matthew is literally called, Could Matthew Count? <laughs> That's what he calls it. But there's more than one curiosity going on in this genealogy. For example, in order to get to 14 names in list two, Matthew skips over three kings. The genealogy reads, Joram is the father of Uzziah. In reality, Joram is the great great-grandfather of Uzziah. There are three missing. And all you have to do is follow the succession of kings in the Old Testament to see that there is a lot of history missing at this point in the genealogy. Joram is one of the wicked kings in the line of David. He is the guy, the king, that you remember as you read the story. Some of these stories all come flooding back to us. He is the king who's married to Athaliah the daughter of the infamous Jezebel. Now, remember that this is in the period of the divided kingdom of Israel that is composed of 10 northern tribes, and it was governed by its own succession of kings, and the single tribe of Judah was governed by the line of David. And as I'm illustrating for you here, just to help you understand it as quickly as we can, in the northern kingdom of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel were evil through and through. They were were on the throne at this time. And they led the whole nation of Israel into Baal worship. I mean, 1 Kings 21-25 actually says that there was no one who had sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab and that Jezebel incited him to sin. Ahab was the king whom the prophet Elijah challenged on Mount Carmel, remember? Where there was this big showdown between God, the real God, the creator, and the false gods of Baal, and God made himself known by fire. So again, it was Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah, whom Joram married. And Joram and Athaliah would have taken Judah deep down the trail of Baal worship. But Joram died. And his son, Ahaziah, who was also a wicked king, reigned for a year before he died violently. And when his mother, Athaliah, saw that her son was dead, she rushed to take the throne for herself, a lot of you remember, by trying to kill all of her grandchildren, murdering them so that all of her son's progeny was dead and she could reign as king. Needless to say, this is not your typical grandmother, okay? But Athaliah's sister-in-law saw what was happening, and when Athaliah tried to kill the grandchildren, she secretly rushed in and rescued one toddler from harm, whose name was Joash. Joash was hidden away as a two-year-old, secretly guarded by the priest, while Athaliah reigned as queen, unaware that there was still one male child unharmed. But when that child, Joash, was eight years old, Joas was brought out before the people and announced by the priests as the true king, and Athaliah ran for her life. They captured her, they put her to death, and Joash reigned 40 years 
And Joash's son, Amaziah, reigned 29 years after that. And Amaziah's son, Uzziah, is where Matthew's genealogy picks up the trail again. So all of this part of the story is passed over in Matthew's genealogy. And we cannot say for certain why Matthew chooses to skip this particular line of kings. But we do know this. In Exodus 20, verse 5, God declares that when he punishes a nation for their idolatry, he says, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third or even the fourth generation of those who hate me. And in the dark time when Ahab and Jezebel reigned in Israel and Joram and Athaliah reigned in Judah, God told Ahab that he would punish him by completely wiping out his lineage in the next generation. Ahab and Jezebel would have no more descendants after that. Now, God would have wiped out Joram's line, but for the sake of his promise to David, he did not. But he did this to Ahab's line, who didn't have the promise. He raised up a king in the northern kingdom named Jehu. Jehu was told by God, you put to death every last descendant of Ahab and his family. And Jehu did. In fact, Jehu also killed Ahaziah, the, king, the first king there that Matthew skips. He kills Ahaziah in this, in this effort to stamp out Ahab and Jezebel's children. That's why I said earlier that Ahaziah reigned for only a year and died a violent death. As for Joash, Joash turned his heart to idolatry in his 40s. And he was violently assassinated by his own servants. And as for Amaziah, his heart was also drawn away from the Lord in his latter years, and he was killed by his political enemies. Second Chronicles 25 says, from the time when Amaziah turned away from the Lord, from that time, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. So we can't say for certain But Matthew may have skipped over these three generations because they represent God's judgment of idolatry in the line of kings. Because idolatry is the antithesis of God with us. Idolatry is our rejection of the very notion of loving God with all our heart and mind and strength, giving our love to something unworthy instead. We think, well, there's no idolatry here in in the United States. Well, there actually is idolatry in the United States of the kind we're actually talking about here in the Old Testament, but we don't see it as much. Our idols end up being ourselves. We, We immerse ourselves in things that we just love all the time, and we get away from loving God supremely. And so these texts warn us about our idolatry. Now, I should make sure we understand there's nothing wrong with what Matthew is doing here in skipping generations. That's actually very common in genealogies because the purpose of the genealogy was not to demonstrate this unbroken biological connection to ancestors. I should say that's not the only thing it's supposed to demonstrate. It's also to tell a story about that succession. It was perfectly legitimate for Matthew to skip names in the list. Matthew skips these names knowing full well that those who read the scriptures are going to notice this, and they're going to wonder why. When he says that his genealogy is three sets of 14, what he means is that he has has designed this, he has contrived this to be three sets of 14. Abraham to David, in fact, represents 750 years. 
Solomon to Jeconiah in list two represents only 400 years. Shealtiel to Jesus represents 600 years. So obviously there are several more names that could be in any one of these lists. But we still haven't answered the question about list three. Why does it appear that there are only 13 names in the list? Could Matthew count? Of course he could count. I mean, he was a tax collector of all things, remember, right? I mean, math was his middle name. Uh, So the question we need to ask is, how does Matthew look at these three sections and say that they comprise a scheme of three by 14? Well, some theories say that Matthew is counting Jeconiah twice. In fact, if you pick up almost any commentary, you're probably going to end, that, end up with that as the explanation. Once at the end of list two and the other time at the beginning of verse three, and Matthew's having to contrive it this way to make sure his list comes out with the right number. But I don't think that's what Matthew is doing. I think that the key to understanding what Matthew is doing is to realize that Matthew does not say that there were 14 generations from David to Jeconiah. He says that there were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon. And who was reigning during the time of the deportation to Babylon? Matthew tells us Jeconiah and his brothers. When Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and took the citizens captive to Babylon, it was a three-stage event. The first time Nebuchadnezzar was in Jerusalem in 607 BC, Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, was king. Nebuchadnezzar removed him in 607 and put up another son of Josiah, Jehoiakim, who was Jeconiah's father, on the throne instead. And and, and Nebuchadnezzar made Jehoiakim pay tribute to him back to Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar took a bunch of people captive. He might have even taken Daniel and his friends captive at this time. We're not sure whether it was this one or the second time he came. But he took a bunch of people captive and they went off to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar thought, okay, now I've got another kingdom paying me money and, and everything is great. But later, Jehoiakim rebelled. So Nebuchadnezzar had to come back to Jerusalem and handle the matter. And he attacked again in the second wave in 597. By then, Jehoiakim was actually dead. He actually died in the battle while Nebuchadnezzar was trying to attack. And Jeconiah, which is the one in Matthew's genealogy, was declared king. And when the armies failed and they had to open the gates for Nebuchadnezzar, Jeconiah and his mom and his sisters and brothers and the court were standing at the gate in surrender, just like Jeremiah the prophet told him to do. Go to the gate, stand there with your mom, because of course his father had died, Jehoiakim was dead, and, and, and go peacefully. And Jeconiah was taken to Babylon with more captives, where God in his providence kept Jeconiah safe. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. But Nebuchadnezzar left Jeconiah's uncle, Zedekiah, in charge. And when Zedekiah rebelled, about a decade later, Nebuchadnezzar came for the third time. Now, he's not coming back after this. He's like, this is the last time I'm making this trip over to Jerusalem from Babylon. And he destroyed the city. Uh, He he, uh, took everybody else captive that he could find. And that was the end of the conquest. And so what this means in in Matthew's genealogy is that when he says the time of the deportation... That's a period lasting about 20 years. 
And in that 20-year period, two generations of kings are represented. Matthew refers to Jeconiah's brothers, but he's using that word, as you see in the Old Testament, to refer to family in general. And Matthew can do that. Really, he's speaking of Jeconiah's father and his uncles. So there's a reasonable solution to Matthew's ostensible inability to count. The deportation of Babylon represents both the last generation of list two and the first generation of list three. So we have Jehoiakim and all of the brothers who were representing the generation at the end of list two and Jeconiah at the beginning of list three. Now, I know that's a lot of history. I just sort of spouted out at you there. And I know it might seem like we're getting too much in the weeds here. And some of you are thinking, wow, this is the worst Christmas sermon I've ever heard. Uh, all kinds of, of history here. We just asked this guy to be full time, you know? So some of you are really getting worried. Uh, but I, I want so much for you to appreciate the fact that this genealogy is not just a list of biological connections. This genealogy tells a story of God's grace and mercy, not only to the line of Abraham and David, but to the entire world. Because God's answer to sin and eternal death is a savior through Abraham's nation and particularly through David's line. Remember, God promised David that he would preserve this line. He told him, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. That's David's kingdom, God talking to the prophet. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him, this is David's son, a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, which, which the kings did, they were not perfect. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love... My chesed will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house, David, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Likewise, in Psalm 89, God says of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My chesed, my steadfast love. I will keep it for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, God obviously saw this coming. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. God is not going to go back on his word. I will not violate my covenant or alter my word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. As we read this prophetic promise from God, we realize that no merely human king could have a throne that lasts as long as God is promising and a kingdom that endures like this. God is making a promise that a divine king will come to rule. And it is only through this divine king that the world can be saved. Think about how God preserved David's lineage. At one point, 
the only progeny left was a two-year-old boy named Joash, whose grandmother wanted to kill him. The promise of the Messiah was literally hanging by a thread. Think about the fact that Nebuchadnezzar could have easily killed the kings when he entered Jerusalem, but instead he took Jeconiah as his prisoner and transported him to Babylon. But really, this could have been the end. I mean, his sons could have been killed. For all people knew, Jeconiah would have died uh, without any error in a prison in Babylon. But do you remember as you read through the scripture every year, if you're on a Bible reading plan, when you come to the end of 2 Kings, the very last words of 2 Kings, it says, and in the 37th year of the exile of Je- uh, Jeconiah, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, that doesn't mean he's evil, by the way, that word actually means servant in Babylonian, okay? Servant of the god Marduk is his name. In, it says, in the year that he began to reign, he graciously freed Jeconiah, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. How is that possible? So Jeconiah put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. That is an amazing example of God's providence and his fulfillment of his promise not to take his hesed, his loving kindness, away from the, from the line that he promised. Why? Because he loved the world, and he was going to save the world through the Savior. There's so many times when God could have said simply, you know, I've had enough. Let's start over. End of the line. But instead, God was faithful to David because he was being faithful to all who would put their trust in David's greatest son, Emmanuel. God come to dwell with us in the person of Jesus. When we celebrate uh, the Christmas story, we are celebrating something that is far beyond ourselves. We are celebrating something that God has been doing for generations and generations, something that God has done to express his promises to us, something that God has done for generations to keep himself from not lying. He's not the God who lies. I will not lie to David, he says. And that promise that we see through this genealogy is a promise that is made to us. The genealogy crescendos in the coming of Jesus because when we place our faith in that Savior, God saves us. In fact, Peter says this in his first letter. He says, but you are a royal race. I'm sorry, a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is our promise from God, based upon what his son, at the climax of human history, 
has done. You know, there are times in our lives where we do not feel particularly related to the spiritual line of Christ. We certainly don't see his holiness in our lives consistently like we should. Sometimes we're tempted to become discouraged. We wonder, indeed, if if we really are safe in Christ, if we're really in the family, and if we are, does it even matter to God? Does Does he really care about us? Peter is speaking to believers who are asking these very questions because they were scattered and persecuted. And Peter here wants to assure them and us that we are a chosen race. We're chosen by God. John tells us in 1 John 4 that we love him because he loved us. And Peter reaffirms this when he says that we are a people for his own possession because we are especially loved by God since we are related to the Emmanuel. Not only are we chosen and loved, but we are a royal priesthood, which is a remarkable combination. Priests and kings had to keep their offices separate in the Old Testament. Uzziah himself learned that when he entered as the king to try to offer incense, and the priest tried to stop him, and he forced his way in, and God struck him with leprosy. But he says here that we are a royal priesthood combining regal and priestly activity. We're priestly representatives of Christ, and we are members of his royal line. It's as if the line of David in Matthew 1 continues with all who put their faith in the greatest person in that lineage, the one whose presence is the only thing that gives the lineage its value. Spiritually, we can all trace our family tree back to Jesus. And just as God was faithful to preserve the line leading up to Jesus, he is just as faithful to preserve the line leading from Jesus. And we rehearse this story so that we can do what Peter says here, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The celebration of Christmas is not just the rehearsal of a familiar story but it's a reminder to us of our place in that story. Do you know Jesus Christ today? I mean, truly, do you know him? Is your story part of the lineage of Christ? If not, he is calling you even today to come out of darkness and into the light of his son. And if you're already part of the family, he's reminding you to trust him, to cling to him, to stop doubting him because he is ever with you. He is your Emmanuel, and he will never, ever forsake us, and he will never, ever take his loving kindness away from us. Father, we are...